but that starts with with pay and competitive pay. And as the cost of all of our inputs go up, you know, the the, the resulting financial conundrum you end up with too is a is a reduced margin. And so that's when volume becomes your friend. And um, in order to sort of to continue on that path of being competitive in those cases and maintaining or protecting a little bit of margin, you've really got to increase your transaction count. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's the Wolf. Today on the show, we have the Valuzo family who collectively own 78 McDonald's restaurants. The Beluzzo family is in their fourth generation of franchise ownership, having gone back all the way to the 1950s when the first restaurant came under ownership. It was a fascinating conversation, especially hearing from two generations of franchisees on one call, and to understand what it's like being a part of the leading brand in franchising at such a large scale. Enjoy. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. And John, remind me, did you begin this journey within the family or is there even, are we going further back? We're going further back. I'm third generation. So my grandfather started with McDonald's in the late fifties. Wow. Holy crap. I mean, maybe from whatever stories have been passed down, that would be, I think, a cool place to start. I mean, it's definitely the, uh, I've never had someone even remotely close to, you know, like a family business going. Yeah, I mean, is there any stories within the family that have been like passed down of like, I mean, your grandfather, you know, why did he buy into it? I mean, it was super early days. I don't think McDonald's started franchising until 1954. Right. No, there are a lot of really interesting stories. My grandfather was an oral surgeon and his neighbor actually sold shake syrup to McDonald's very early as a fledgling company. So, you know, the whole Ray Kroc, Prince Castle, Multimixer yep. story. He lived in Battle Creek, Michigan, and a lot of syrup and corn-related products were produced there. And he told my grandfather, you're looking to retire. You may want to consider the restaurant business, leaving as an oral surgeon. So he did that and actually moved within two weeks of meeting Ray Kroc down to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So it was a really quick turnaround. They were, you know, he had the capital at the time, which that early at McDonald's was not very common. So they found someone with yeah. capital. He didn't have any business or restaurant experience, and he was a franchisee within two weeks. So that's Holy the beginning crap. of the story. Yeah, it's funny. Just like thinking to that, to you know, today you can't even buy a franchise that quickly because there's you know all the FTC right. regulation. That's insane. So, so the first location was in Alabama for your family then. Yes, it was, and it was uh, one of the early, probably under 125 restaurants domestically. So his early number would have been like 115 or something like that. They number the restaurants with a national number every time they open one. Is that store still within the family or, you know, has it moved or anything like that? No, he actually left Tuscaloosa in 1961. 
So okay. he moved over to Baton Rouge because there was a greater opportunity for three restaurants in Baton Rouge. And Tuscaloosa, there was only one on the books at the time to open there. And so this is cool because we have you who, you know, I, I assume your father took it over from your grandfather. And now, you know, we got Mike and Nick on, on the show here too. And they've really helped you grow this empire. So, you know, what was it like for you, John? And then I'll flip it over to Mike and Nick. But what was it like for you to grow up in the world of McDonald's, right? You know, were you work in the store, work in the drive-through? What was that like? You know, actually, as I first started working, we didn't have drive-through. So everything was on, on a counter. Every <laughs> uh, drive-through was a fairly new invention until the mid-70s. But no, it was just part of our life. I mean, even as a young child, when there weren't even seats in the McDonald's, I remember as a child going to you know visit my dad at work and you know watch the procedures, get in the back of the restaurant, you know, learn how they cut potatoes at the time. They had meat being delivered. It was, you know, a very different business. Everything was sourced locally, you know, from dairy to meat to potatoes. So you were, you know, they were setting up their own distribution network of sorts early on, but it was a lot of different vendors they were managing. It was, and again, you could tell by the prices. I think hamburgers were 15 cents. So inflation was in a little different place, but no, it was, it was just part of the lifestyle at the time for our family. My grandfather was in the business. It was just part of our life. That was the business we were in. So, you know, we did, we took advantage of every part of it. And, uh, you know, many of his early teachings to me, including the work ethic and, you know, what a business like this takes that's open so long during the week, you know, and so many hours is, uh, you know, the whole community part, because we try to be a strong part of every community we're in. Then we really put our funds where our mouth is to support where we live, where our employees live and operate, and you know the churches they go to, the schools, the teams they're on, et cetera. Incredible, yeah. And then Mike and Nick, you know, would you guys echo similar that you know growing up under your father, it was kind of just hey, McDonald's is is just part of our life. You know, maybe learning the ins and outs of the stores at an early age, or you know, was there ever moments? Obviously, you guys are heavily involved today, but was there ever moments where you thought, eh? I'm not going to do the family business. Maybe I'll try something else. Or, or were you guys kind of just had that McDonald's blood from day one? Well, I would say yes. And and we've been in this for quite some time. Obviously, Michael and I are both fourth generation operators, owner operators within the McDonald's system. And it was always encouraged for us to have from our father to have a perspective of what do you want to do? It was never forced upon. There was never an expectation to come back to the family business or work. So we really had the freedom to make the decision ourselves. And quite honestly, it panned out really well because we get to work together every day. Yeah. And Mike, your thoughts as well. Yeah, uh, very true. I think the last thing dad said too about uh, sponsoring teams and in the communities, you know, growing up being the sort of the third generation in Baton Rouge of the McDonald's family and being the local owner operators, you know, we wore McDonald's arches on every single one of our teams, you know, the <laughs> baseball, basketball and, and football and so we grew up in that culture. And so they, they talk about ketchup being in your veins. And truly, that was always the case. And to Nicholas's point, too, you know, we I'm not sure either of us really thought that we would be in the business. We both pursued different things. And then we came back. And it is such a fantastic opportunity. McDonald's is a great brand. And we've got this amazing opportunity to work with one another as brothers. And we get to follow in our father's footsteps. And, you know, to not to, to overplay it, but we do feel like we get to sort of stand on the shoulders of a giant when we get to be in this business and learn from him because 
you know, we take a lot of pride in what we do and, and, and certainly to be around this long, any family business and not just the McDonald's world, but to have persisted generationally, it's unusual. And so to continue growing in that business and Nicholas and I have taken that opportunity and, and run with it as well. So we certainly feel privileged for sure. But uh, it's something that we like to think too, we're building it for a fifth generation, which, you know, in terms of franchise business or business period, to think to think in terms of five generations is is really hard to conceive. But that's what we're continuing to do is build this brand and do the best we can for it. I completely agree on, on the sentiment, you know, to have a any business, McDonald's or not, right, last as long and prosper is really impressive. And I think that's a good kind of segue to can, and you know, I'll pose this, you know, whoever wants to jump in, but what's kind of the, let's paint the historical timeline for listeners, right? In that, I guess it started in the 1950s with John's grandfather, you know, where are you at today in terms of number of locations, you know, number of states operated in? And, you know, from there, we can dive into kind of a variety of questions. Sure. I'll give that overview. Yes, my grandfather started in the late 50s in Tuscaloosa. A few years later, my dad actually became a franchisee in Java, Missouri. When my grandfather came to Baton Rouge to run multiple restaurants, my dad, about a year later, came from Joplin, Missouri to join him. So they became one business unit. Fast forward a few years, we grew pretty well as a child. We had grown to 12 restaurants by the time I graduated from college. So at the time, that was a fairly nice franchise group patch in the uh, early 80s. Uh, soon after the 80s and then going fast forward 20 years, we basically quadrupled in size. Fast forward another 10 years, we moved into Mississippi for our first venture out and it's just a you know we don't live far from the mississippi border we then furthered that expansion in 2019 into north mississippi into parts of jackson into birmingham alabama so it's been a fairly fast progression as we've gone but very deliberate and very careful we're blessed to have a lot of people a lot of great people on our team who've been loyal to us the entire time and this is uh you know we both pick up new talent when we, as we've grown, because a lot of our growth has come through acquisition. So we've picked up a lot of great talent and we have a lot of people who work for us a long time. I mean, we just gave a uh, swing manager a 38 year award two weeks ago who, who has been here that long. So when, when we did so, Michael and I went to the restaurant to give it out and she, Michael let her know that she had started actually before he was born. So it was really kind of a, a cool story, but again, it's, pretty typical with what we do. Our general managers tend to work for us for more than 20 years, supervisors a little bit more, and the higher up you go in our org, the longer their tenure. So that's a brief thumbnail of how we've grown and when we've grown. That's really incredible. Uh, did you say 38 years that someone's been working for you? Oh, yes. Last year, we had somebody retire after 45 years. Yes. And see, so that's the gentleman who actually taught dad grill. Yes. <laughs> Man. Yeah. I, uh, I can't even imagine. I'm sure that there's a lot of incredible stories just within the organization. So you mentioned a lot of the growth has come from acquisitions. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's close to 90 to 100 stores within your group today. Uh, we're actually at 78. 78. Okay. All right. Still yes. <laughs> very big number. Uh, I know uh, a lot of people, you know, it's one of the mo more common questions I get is, you know, how, how can I break into fast food, especially big fast food? So I think there's a lot of people who would envy that number. 
you know, what about acquisitions? I, I feel like I know the answer, but you know, why has acquisitions been the path forward? My guess is that it's McDonald's. It's tough to find greenfield opportunities with <laughs> McDonald's in America, which is very different than most of the brands I have on the show that are in the emerging space. But, you know, is there anything particular though, besides that, that, you know, really makes the acquisition growth channel attractive or easier within the McDonald's system specifically? Well, I, yeah, I can take this one. So also too, this is, we've witnessed this brand obviously grow through 60 plus years. And so Nicholas, in my perspective on growth and acquisition is different than dad's because dad in the early nineties was a part of rapid market expansion. And there was those green pastures where, you know, they were developing on, you know, new corners and as cities were sort of growing and developing. And we operate in several large metropolitan areas. But when we were coming up in the business and when Nicholas and I first started, we had 31 stores. And, but at that point, you've got a pretty, from a development standpoint, a fairly saturated in each of the cities and areas that we operate. And so acquisition is really your only growth within the brand of McDonald's. In my career, which is 12 years, we've only built two restaurants organically. And so when we look at growth opportunity and operating within a franchise model like McDonald's, you know, you've got to match a lot of criteria. You know, it's, it's got to be approved by McDonald's. You've got to agree upon evaluation with the seller. Um, there's a bunch of hoops you've got to jump through and make sure that you're qualified to buy. And then um, from there, you know, aggressive negotiating. And then does it work geographically? Is it contiguous? If it's not contiguous, is it something you can bring into your, your current organization and really thrive operationally? Yeah, McDonald's, I will say this. They've been really good to the Beluzo family. They've allowed the opportunities that were presented, many of them, to come to fruition. So the acquisition growth, Michael described the organic growth, we've had. But the acquisition growth is relatively more recent. But when I say that, that's over 25 years. So it's still a fairly long period of time. But again, McDonald's is a great brand to allow people like us who put in the time, who, who and this is an important fact, build the team that can then do more. So we have always prided ourselves on having the team that can do more. And you get as you grow a little bit, you can increase your talent level. So you add disciplines, you add expertise, and then that can perpetuate. But I will also say we've been very deliberate with this. Unlike the fast growing groups, we were also cautious or patient enough, maybe that's the best word, to do so when we're ready. You, you just don't want to make a tremendous, you're always taking risk in business, we want the calculated risk that we know we can handle to make that next move. And, and we don't ever want to lose traction with what we've accomplished, but we want to grow again, very carefully, smartly. And again, every business is a risk that you grow tomorrow. Nobody can predict tomorrow. So absolutely. And I think, you know, it probably varies from deal to deal, but has there been a consistent theme with these acquisitions? You know, is it, well, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, as I'm thinking about or asking this question, I'm thinking about kind of over the last year, there have been some very positive articles and press about the valuations of McDonald's stores. So, you know, are you guys effectively having to pay full cash for these deals? Because if I imagine if I'm a multi-unit McDonald's owner selling to another franchisee, I mean, you probably get a pretty penny for the price on that. So, yeah, I'm curious, you know, as much as you're willing to share, you know, are these all cash deals? Are you guys able to fund all these via profits from other stores, you know, what's your kind of acquisition 
structure look like? Well, I would say we make good use of the banks that we use. So, I mean, every acquisition period we've had, every acquisition we've made has made good financial sense. So, you know, that's taking a look at our current operating environment, what, you know, the required equity injection to start the business, and then knowing what we can do from both a top line and controls standpoint, where we can pick up efficiencies, where we can make improvements, et cetera. So yes, it's been, that's all very, a very important part of the equation. Now you referenced a lot of the multiples and you said what may be accelerating this. McDonald's today has approximately 1,400 franchisees. That number was considerably higher years ago. The average franchisee at one point had three restaurants. That number is much higher now, like nine. So there have been a lot of retirements. There may not be families like us that have multi-generational desires. So you have retirements that have gone on, and I think primarily because of the age of McDonald's. So if you go back, you know, 66, 67 years, you're on your probably your second generation of retirements in the business of people who've, you know, they've gone through their cycle, they're at the end of their business life, and they're going on to the next phase of life. So I think that's been an important part of the timing for us as well. That That's a consistent theme I've heard from, I'd say, legacy brands is that, you know, there are those opportunities when you have a brand that's been around for as long as McDonald's had, where some folks are retiring and that does present acquisition opportunities. And would you all agree? Because again, if it is, you know, there are more and more people, it seems like, who are interested in franchising. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of value, right, to a big brand, you know, none more exemplary than McDonald's. Just given that there's let, you don't have to worry per se. I know location still matters, but you don't have to worry, right, about customers walking in the door. You know, you have that national recognition. So for folks trying to maybe break into a McDonald's, from what you guys have seen, you know, how tough is it, would you say, from what you know, right? It, I got to imagine that a lot of these acquisition opportunities are shopped within the existing franchisee base before they'd consider an outsider. But I'd love to hear, you know, any of your guys kind of takes on that. We, so in the, in the McDonald's world, especially today, I do think there's a, a huge barrier to entry in terms of the initial buy-in. It certainly has benefited Nicholas and I being multi-gen, and we've got a lot of peers that are next-gen. And McDonald's, I think, has done a really good job of helping perpetuate of multi-generational businesses in that, you know, we learned, it was said very early on, I think Nicholas said it about work ethic. You know, when you're a small business owner, you're the first phone call of the day and you're the last one, right? And so whether it's McDonald's or any other brand, McDonald's being one because of the capital expenditure and the initial cost, newer entrants are fewer, but it doesn't mean it's a longer or harder road to hoe necessarily because McDonald's does a good job to making sure that they learn. And we've had folks who come through as registered applicants that we've trained and, you know, show them how to do this. And so money being one of the largest qualifiers, uh, once they learn this business, because it's got such a storied history and it's one of the system that's tried and true, McDonald's isn't experimenting on corners. You know, there's a certain amount of reliability when we go in knowing sales, cash flow, et cetera. And so if you can adopt the model and do well, you know, versus a startup where I think there's a little bit more unknown. And so to me, the idea of, of a newer brand is not something that I would ever shy away from, but there's something about being such a trusted brand like a McDonald's that it sort of gives us just a little bit more of a running room, right? And that's probably why the buried entry is so great and the competitiveness is so high as well. 
But and that said, just to supplement that, McDonald's is working very deliberately to bring new blood into the system. They are the what they call the registered applicant program is very much alive. In fact, I would say it's accelerated, and I think that's really good. So, you know, as to Michael's point on how people come in, learn the system, make a decision on whether they would like to do this as a career. And in the case of McDonald's, this isn't your second job or uh, this isn't just an investment. This is your primary job. This is a full-time best effort type of environment and very frankly, type of legal requirement that McDonald's expects from you. So there is both. The barrier, yeah, it's tough. They've got very high standards. Is it achievable for people interested? 100%. I have heard of a few folks who have made, at least made it into the actual process and opted out for one reason or another, mainly due to just changes in kind of what they were looking for professionally. But so, yeah, I agree. You know, for folks listening, if if you're really intent on big fast food, it is certainly possible, but you just kind of got to play the game the right way. You know, I'm curious, you know, maybe Nick, you can take this one. You know, what was it like training at McDonald's? Because there's a lot. I've heard about the support and training system. And I think, you know, right, Hamburger University, you know, what was that like kind of having to go there, even though your your father's already an owner and that even that next gen program, I, I bet was a big part of it. You know, how long is it? What are the days like? I think a lot of people would just be curious to kind of get the general high level of like, what does that kind of program look like? So you touched on next gen program. That is a program obviously set up for multiple generations of owner-operators and families getting in the business. It could be spouse, it could be children, it could be cousins, however they see it fit. So I would say that the, the program itself is not necessarily a given. You have to get into the business. They approve you. You have shown that you can operate within the company. You're driving sales and guest counts. You're operating at a high level. Uh, within the organization, you're differentiating yourself amongst both your peers and your co-ops that you operate within. But it's 100% driven upon you. Your results are your results. They want to see you be that leader within. And there's an absolutely nothing given to you in the standpoint, hey, I'm a Veluza, I'm a fourth generation. This is yeah. absolutely not. We had to go in. Michael and I both did them at different times. My program was a little bit different than his. It continuously evolves, which is great to continue to up the ante on the the applicant themselves and make sure that we're going with the best business-minded people. When it comes to the training programs within the restaurant, I feel like we're one of the best in the world when it comes to teaching our people more or less the ropes of how to become an employee. A lot of our employees, are, this is their first job, so it's our responsibility to teach a lot of first job mindsets and dealing with the customer service world. That is a different beast in, than most people are used to, or especially when they're young. So I think that as we teach the training program within the organization or within the restaurant, you can go up through crew to crew trainer. There's all specific things that they learn through different items of positions, and then they go into their leadership skills, and we have different classes for the leadership skills to become managers. And then HU, HU is where you go to learn how to run the restaurant, Hamburger University. It's based in Chicago now. It used to be based in Oak Brook. And they go there for a week and really deep dive into the fundamentals of running a restaurant, building a team, and 
you know, becoming profitable and then being the best community person within your four corners of which you operate in. So it's a complete path for success for an individual, for sure. It's really, really fascinating. And, you know, I think it just, just proves one, one of the massive benefits and differentiators is that, you know, a legacy like brand like McDonald's, right, can do these things. Again, you know, we spend a lot of time in the emerging franchise world, or at least that I do. And, you know, I think a lot of brands would love to have, you know, their version of a hamburger you, but I'm just, you know, the scale and the size of McDonald's is just, it's just so hard to really, truly fathom. What do you think that they really just have probably have a, just a massive educational and training facility uh, that they're paying for in Chicago? It's really incredible to think about. And it is, it's an incredible facility. And there's also continuing education past HU that they can get leadership skills and and define things for mid-management and other areas. So it's an incredible platform that we have access to in order to be and develop our people into the best that they can be. Amazing. Yeah. And and John, would you say when you were kind of really starting to go full-time in the McDonald's world, I mean, is this a similar story? You know, you kind of really had to earn your stripes within the system and head to some form of of the training system as it was at that point? 100%. You go through, uh, in the registered applicant program, even in the mid-80s, late-80s when I went through, you go through every phase that any general manager does. You're expected to run a restaurant. You're expected to be able to have the capacity to run multiple restaurants. So, you know, they judge that differently on the person involved. But, no, your training, although technology has changed a lot of things, I would say the fundamentals have not. I mean, it's still a lot of the focus is on the people who you lead. The focus is on the facility. The focus is on general business practices from, you know, growing sales to controlling expenses to managing risk and to, again, to be a good community leader. So the fundamentals have have been the same. The training systems evolve appropriately over time as technology changes. And right now, of course, we're doing a lot of web-based training, a lot of video-based training, and it makes it super efficient. But the capstone for us still remains Hamburger University. And they've got those all over the world. This is not a United States campus. It's There are uh, Hamburger <laughs> universities all over the world. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it is pretty impressive for an industry like ours, retail-based, to have continuing education to that point for their ground-level managers. It's really incredible. Yeah. I mean, it really is that not to, no pun intended, but the top of the food chain from like a franchise education and support perspective. It's just, I think every brand should really aspire to reach it. And obviously, you know, there's some things that can only happen in time and McDonald's has that advantage and that they've been around for so long, but, you know, emerging franchises listening to this, I think, you know, within your means, try to be on the path to this level of support for franchisees. And, you know, you mentioned web-based training you know, I think it'd be really interesting to hear as much as you're obviously able to share, you know, what kind of, is there tech? Like, I'd imagine you guys have some form of proprietary tech that is just part of the operating system of a McDonald's, you know, for instance, like you have 78 stores, you know, are you guys, do you have some portal, like some McDonald's portal where you can view everything happening at your stores, you know, from labor to the shifts to, you know, sales and all that type of stuff, right? Or, or is McDonald's using, you know, third-party software for some of these things? It's a combination. We use a myriad of technology, believe it or not. So McDonald's does have some proprietary software that's inside the the restaurants. And layered on top of that is some third-party software that 
it helps you manage the data in a much more visual way. And when you think about the volume of with which we deal with, I mean, it's very transactional line data, right? Whether it's a, a customer receipt or transactions per man hour or your drive-through times, your receipt to present type stuff. And we look at and we measure everything. And And I don't know if that's necessarily due to the maturity of McDonald's, but we know that by looking at certain things, by looking at everything and then dialing it down through a, a graphical user interface, like the tools that we do use that helps you manage the data in a little bit more digestible manner, it, it gives you an opportunity to sort of manage things differently. And so I think back in the day where you got a phone call the next day reporting sales from yesterday, we can look right now what we did through 30 minutes from 11 to 11.30. And we know exactly how many people are on the clock. We use a different technology to go look at video to see who's in which area of the restaurant. We've got back door, you know, alerts that show you if a door was open for someone to let out trash, you know, and so we get alerts whenever there's a DoorDash, an Uber Eats delivery. And, you know, it's a third party that comes into your restaurant to service customers. And and so you can almost be over uh, paralysis by analysis. No. So one of our jobs <laughs> is helping put that data in a, in a digestible format to help us manage our, our folks and teams because technology is certainly your friend because of the immediacy today, but it certainly can be overwhelming. So that's a huge task that we have is, is helping our people manage that and how they dictate from that data uh, managing better. To add one thing on the technology, uh, the third-party applications are incredible. The McDonald's system is very robust and consistent. And if we need further, we go develop that ourselves. So if we have another internal need, we will gladly hire programmers to come up with a system with what we need to become more efficient within our own scale. And and we know that will take us, the programs we have written will take us to a certain size, and then we'll have to make a modification with how we approach what we've had developed. And you mentioned two training. So the McDonald's world, all training born out of MHQ, you know, headquarters and where Hamburg University is hosted. They do a great job with these the academic setting, and that's really ground up too. They talk about what to do on the floor, how to make a sandwich, to Nicholas's point, all the way to managing through crisis and chaos. There's soft skills. We take those tools, and then we also internalize them with our own. And so we use our own video conferencing software. We'll host training classes that is you know live feed from our office, and you'll have managers in the restaurants with, it could be, we use Teams internally, but it could be Zoom. It could be Google Meet. And so we pretty much use every every outlet of technology as possible. We'll we use GroupMe for group text messaging, and you know it's almost like there's not one 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 tool that that we can say we really manage from as a platform. I'd imagine it's pretty robust, and that you know, as you said, uh, probably need to be careful to not get too lost in the data. But uh, yeah, I would imagine that you know you guys can pretty much pull every every metric possible at any second if you wanted to, which it. Over the course of, you know, kind of how you guys were painting the picture of, you know, all the different facets of a restaurant from third party delivery to, you know, making the sandwiches from the obviously this is just from the lens of I know you guys haven't, you know, you, do, you don't necessarily own or maybe you do, but we haven't talked about it. Other restaurants, but, you know, the restaurant industry, there, there's a lot of conversation happening, right, about labor costs, cost of food supplies, and then you know, price inflation on menus, you know, customers are complaining about that across, you know, just in general, you know, and uh, I've even seen folks, you know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter 
Uh, there's a lot of people who are saying, hey, like this is not a good time to, to own a restaurant. Like if you're going to start a business today, don't pick the restaurant industry. You know, w- what have you guys seen? You know, has the labor cost been, you know, is it an issue or is it a crisis? I guess is really the question, you know, like what have you guys seen from those perspectives on, you know, from the inputs to your McDonald's businesses? I think there's no denying that costs have, have risen pretty steadily over the last few years, you know, and you, you've had uh, inflation and its cost of input, its cost of labor. And, you know, in a, in a smaller margin business like fast food or any restaurant business, you have to really closely manage and look at that. And so is it a crisis? No, I won't say it's a crisis, but it's certainly something you have to pay very, very close attention to. And also, too, in, in a world where we're competing for a limited pool of people, we have to be competitive on a, on a pay uh, scale. And so we've got to be incredibly competitive, if not the most competitive. I think, you know, to work at McDonald's, you know, we've got internally, we've got a fantastic set of benefits that I think make us best in class, which is why if you were going to go get a fast food job, a quick serve job, and you look at what Voluzo Companies has to offer, we would be the easy choice. But that starts with with pay and competitive pay. And as the cost of all of our inputs go up, you know, the, the, the resulting financial conundrum you end up with too is a, is a reduced margin. And so that's when volume becomes your friend. And um, in order to sort of to continue on that path of being competitive in those cases and maintaining or protecting a little bit of margin, you've really got to increase your transaction count. And inevitably too, your, your pricing, your menu board is going to change as a result of every other input going up. And I think we see that in the grocery stores, you see it at fast food, you see it at casual dining, fast and even a white table. And look, to quantify some of the things Michael mentioned, we feel labor, and we know factually, that labor has outpaced food cost increases. So the cost of labor over the same period over the last uh, few years is definitely on a much faster pace of growth than the cost of goods coming in. Now, we do see cost of goods stabilizing a bit, the increases being reduced. I wouldn't call it disinflation. We're not at that point yet. And, you know, and read enough economic articles. I don't know if we'll get there. I don't know that I've seen a lot of people reduce their prices significantly over time. And it's really the same on wages. You generally never go back. So you, what you've established is a new baseline with your cost of goods, with your labor costs. And again, we absorb some of that in margin loss. We pass on a fair amount of that to consumers in the form of increased prices. And it also changes our promotion mix with how we approach that. So it, it is, it's complex. It's, they're very fine margins. We use outside services for pricing. These are not arbitrary decisions that we make in an office one day. We have professionals that manage our pricing. So we take advantage of that. It's provided by McDonald's, but certainly not dictated by them, but we definitely use the service that's available. So that's really interesting, especially the aspect of kind of that idea you mentioned that once you raise prices or raise wages, it, you know, I, I kind of see where you're coming from where like the genie's out of the bottle. It's hard to just unwind that, especially I'm thinking from like an employee perspective. I couldn't imagine just being told, Hey, you're doing a great job, but you know, the economy is happening and uh, yeah, you're, you're making less this year. Like who's going to accept that? Um, so yeah, that's, that's fascinating that perhaps we are just in this new era now where uh, the baseline is, is kind of just has risen and uh, it, it might not be going back down. So 
you know, I'd imagine too, your guys' scale is such a huge advantage, right? Where you, you talked earlier about the tenure of some of your employees. And I mean, that to me is just so attractive where you guys can actually paint a picture and tell the story of what's possible within your greater organization of how you can rise within it versus not to say it's, you know, not possible for a single shop or a single store owner to build an organization like that. But it just today, it, it can't be denied, right? That's an advantage that you can offer that upward mobility. And I will also say this, you know, the threshold we've got at our door when people come through our door to start, they started an individual restaurant and, you know, we've had the pure pleasure. We've had Super Bowl players who've played, who've worked for us. We've had board members of Fortune 100 companies. We've had an NBA head coach who's come across our door, generally starting as teenagers. And then again, the threshold was open with us. They continue on their movement other places. So even a new concept, the person coming in, they're on a path. And you're probably going to be very surprised where the people who've come across your path land. I mean, we've got people who chose to go work for the corporation after working here and they're vice presidents. So, you know, that success path, we're happy for everybody. We love the people who stay here and are dedicated to the brand. We're also very happy for the people who transition and make this a stopping point on their career path. And we're lucky they crossed our threshold. We say that all the time. I love that. I think that's a really good mentality where, you know, as an employer, you know, because I've worked in the opposite where there's almost a culture of, you know, the if you leave, you're a trader. So it's kind of nice to hear that you guys are happy to see an, someone grow as an employee. And if that means that they're not working within Veluso companies, it's not necessarily, you know, a bad thing, right? It's not also just people who move on in business, you know, uh, whether it's your, your best first job or it's just a job at McDonald's while you're in school. I, I can't tell you how many times that Nicholas and I will be out in public and you know, some young lady will run up and give him a huge hug. And, you know, we'd be at the hospital for the delivery of one of our children and it's a nurse in the delivery room. And so it's, you know, <laughs> you don't realize too, whether it's an executive at McDonald's or an NBA coach, we've got a large number of employees and we have over time, we've been in the business a long time. When you create a positive experience for them, whether it's, you know, the McDonald's learning uh, behind the counter at a cash register, you know, you learn humility, customer service, how to deal with irate customers, conflict management, and even on good days, you get to high five your friends. But when they move on and they had a good experience because of who they worked for, and so this is probably advice for the larger body, but what I think Nicholas, dad, and I can be most proud when we see somebody who has moved on, who comes and gives us a hug and says, you know, I had a great experience with you. I'm a nurse now, but I learned from y'all and, and I remember you. And it was a very important part of my life. That is not rare. And I think that's probably one of the proudest things alongside those who still work with us and are still, you know, going to war with us in the trenches. You know, that both of those are the things that I would say we're most proud of as owner operators in McDonald's. Yeah, Michael, I, I, to second that, there's nothing more important than running into somebody in public that we've impacted at some point along their life that's made us part of their life and part of their growth journey to dad's point. It's truly impactful. It really allows us to also step back and say, we are doing the right thing for our people because we do understand that this is a people business and a people people's brand. So we do pride ourselves amongst all of those things that we just talked about. Yeah. It's probably pretty incredible for you guys to think about, right? I mean, just 78 locations. I mean, a lot of foot traffic and online orders, the amount of 
people, not just at your organization, but even the, the amount of customers that, you know, have stepped foot and interacted with one of your businesses. It's, you know, probably just insane to really think about, you know, within Veluzo companies, and I'm thinking about this just as you guys as entrepreneurs, have you ever opened a different restaurant or a different franchise? You know, have you ever thought about it if you haven't? Or is the portfolio 100% McDonald's, no other restaurants, no other businesses or real estate or, you know, curious to hear if you've if ever diversified kind of across the portfolio? You know, our focus and, and really there there is a line in the in the FDD with McDonald's that declares full best effort. And that's one thing that we, the Luzo companies, me, Nicholas and, and John, dad, we have taken really to heart. And so- I think too, when you get to our size and scale, and that whether it's the the volume of of sales or the volume of people that we deal with, you know, there's not much room for much else. And so, full best effort isn't a recommendation; it's an absolute for us. And so, we take it pretty seriously. And quite frankly, too, when you look at the at least for us, we know this business so well, and I think we can confidently say we're pretty darn good at it. And so. Anything that would deviate from sort of our primary business would be that to be a deviation. And so I, I think we we do what we're good at and uh, we stay in our lane with that regard. And we also, we take the term operator to heart. I mean, we are the operators here. We are the one ultimately responsible for what occurs in McDonald's. So, you know, the, the franchisor has given us that opportunity with their restaurants. We take that very seriously. And it is... To Michael's point, I don't know how you'd have time for anything else. That doesn't mean we can't grow within the brand, but for us, we're really good in this lane. And we, this is the business we operate within. We don't operate other restaurants. We don't, you know, we may own a building that we use for our maintenance facility. That's our extended real estate. So we've got a few little buildings here and there, but it's all business focused for equipment repair or, you know, et cetera, because we've got a a degree of vertical integration that we've been able to take advantage of with, with our size. So. Yeah. I would just be a third comment to that. I mean, to y'all's both point, I, we barely have enough time to coach our kids outside of work. So, you know, and that's my brother and I, Michael, we both pride ourselves on that. And obviously dad enjoys throwing the ball here and there too. So trying to figure out anything past what we do, what we love is really tough and it really hadn't crossed our minds. You know, one of you guys mentioned maintenance, the machines and whatnot. And I got to ask the question. It, this, <laughs> I don't know if you know where I'm going with this. You, I'm 100%. <laughs> a lot of conspiracies out there, guys. There's a lot of conspiracies. This is one of the hottest topics on the internet. Well, Ruth, can you answer the million dollar question? Is the McDonald's ice cream machine, you know, is there something going on there? Or is it just overblown internet culture? Well, I'll let Nichols get take ten seconds. Nichols go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on the spot. Yeah, seat. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the hot seat question. Yeah. All right. <laughs> if you're ordering just a dessert, it may be a problem. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think it's a, uh, I'm kidding. I think it's a, a combination. The machines are very difficult to operate, and they're very finicky. So there is a reality to that. Secondly, you know, it's a common thing, obviously, within the restaurant. Or within us, and like you said, it's become a culture thing, if you will, or phenomena that, oh, the ice cream machine's broken, or you got an app that tells you what ice cream machine working. You know, it's a very finicky yeah. piece of equipment. I'll tell you, us personally, we pride ourselves on them working. 
and really have some pure focus, if you will, when it comes to making sure all of our product availability is there. So it is something that we pay attention to daily. We also have an entire dedicated team for us internally. They are very finicky, complex machines that tend to break. Uh, it's not a joke. I mean, it's they do break often and you need to take proper preventative maintenance. You got to break them down very often to clean them. And due to some of the complexity of the internal machine, we have taken steps that that try to get in front of that as a Voluzo company's brand within a brand. We've got dedicated people that just clean and break down our ice cream machines in every single one of our mini markets. And that is their full-time job. They wake up, they go clean, break down machines, fix it, repair it, and then make note of anything that's fallen out of kilter. And then we address it as soon as we can. We've got people that are trained on these machines uh, internally to a certain extent, you know, obviously within and not breaking any warranty or otherwise, but, and we do put full best effort towards ice cream because we hate having a little bit of, we're an egg on our face uh, or ice cream, if you will. And we don't, we don't like that. We don't want that. And right. look, I've got kids in my, my son's kindergarten class, Wolf, who come up to me and they say, they call me the Happy Meal Man. And they even joke about the ice cream machines. And so, you know what I do? I give them all free ice cream cards. I say, y'all go give us a shot. Give these to mommy and daddy and y'all go see if our ice cream machines work. So, but that's how pervasive right. it sort of is too, is an internet, you know, conspiracy of sorts that, that even five-year-olds kind of make the joke. So- but from this Happy Meal man and from this Happy Meal man and then to that Happy Meal man, we, we do our best. We really do. Yeah. We can tell you every day which ones are not working. It is a priority of ours every day. We can probably tell you that more than we can tell you what if a fryer was out for cooking fries. We know about the ice cream first <laughs> because it you know it gets a lot of attention. But um, yeah, we do. A lot of it's, uh, yeah. Look, the machine's a great machine. It's complex. They last a long time. They just, it takes a special technician to fix them. And, you know, the, it's got a lot of parts. So, you know, I, I think anybody who has anything, you've got an automobile, you're, there's a lot of things that can occur nowadays. So, but we work hard to not get embarrassed by the, that machine not working or any of our machines, frankly. Yeah. No, uh, I, I think, Mike, the fact that, uh, yeah, I mean, you got first graders cracking jokes that that probably it just it's gone pretty far. This whole culture, I mean, that's that's something. Uh, well, I, I am really interested too. I mean, you guys have talked now about you have effectively just technicians with their full time jobs to fix equipment. You know, this vertical integration within the Veluso company's world is pretty fascinating. I mean, does it go further than just equipment maintenance? I mean, you know, what does that world look like? Like, what's this business web that lives within the Beluzo company's world? We have our own internal internet site that our managers and full team have access to. This site houses everything from crew people, incident reports, and obviously the maintenance website that you have alluded to. And within the maintenance website, we have drop-down boxes of how they turn in broken equipment what we determine as predetermined as high priorities, which means that they're going to get an email very quickly with a technician calling them with a response. And we try to do a phone fix first and best understand what the error code may be, may or may not be. But every single piece of equipment inside of our locations has a type of potential breakdown that we have already listed within the dropdown boxes that the managers can select then they can go in and put pictures, they can upload com comments to it, and it helps allow us a clear picture with what's not working. And a technician can reach out to them really quickly, relatively quickly. We try to be within 48 hours 
of a piece of equipment down to be them right back up. And that's our goal. We have, obviously, like I said, a dedicated team of more than 30 people to that specifically with maintenance. And we also have a dedicated IT team as well that keeps us, keeps the generation going with the POS system, the internet, the cashless systems, any kind of potential problems with our kitchen video system, anything like that, they keep us running. They're the heartbeat of what we do. And that is all housed on that intro company website. I think to extrapolate it out, so we do have, we've got maintenance techs, we've got IT techs, and you talk about the complexities within the restaurants in terms of machines, systems, you know, that's the heartbeat of what makes, you know, how we serve customers every day. But extrapolating it out to talk a little bit more about maybe total work, you've got us three operators, uh, three owner operators, and and we've got an organization sort of that beneath us that that operates uh, in conjunction with that maintenance and IT group, but that's the the lifeblood of of how we serve customers every day. And so, actually, to to reference back to our tenure, you know, our, our two two highest ranking folks in operations, one started at age fifteen, and the other started at age eighteen, and and both have been here thirty five and twenty seven years, I think, respectively. And then underneath that, without getting overly detailed, we've really got a it's a three to one ratio, restaurant to supervisor, supervisor to DO. And then um, you've got a few more DOs in that to VPs that then trickle up through us. And then, you know, that in conjunction with our back office, which we've got several disciplines in-house from a CPA standpoint, we've got every professional uh, degree you could ever ask for or need to kind of it, it help the heartbeat of payroll and AP and making sure that, that everything ticks behind the scenes. But really, it's that ground up, we call it the crew room to the boardroom now, that whether it's a machine that goes down and a maintenance person that checks it or a supervisor who's on a call to help and help communicate information on down, you know, the organization as a pyramid is, is actually relatively flat. And so um, that's sort of how we get things done too, whether an equipment is down and we're very quick to react or um, if someone's not selling ice cream, you know, that if that comes, if you, if a general <laughs> manager hears from a Valusa that the ice cream machine is broken, you know, that. That's not unheard of. That's how flat our org is. And that's also kind of our, as operators, that's our obligation to attention to detail. So, Hey, Wolf, you can extrapolate what I said. I misunderstood the comment. I apologize. Oh, no, 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 totally. I mean, it, it was it was still uh, st- still super relevant. Uh, yeah, I was just curious to learn more about these, you know, not, a, not essential or they're essential, but I'd say almost businesses within the business, right? Which it sounds like primarily is maintenance and IT. They're all support functions for the restaurant. At the end of the day, yep. it is. It's maintenance, it's IT, it's our HR and training department, and it's our administrative arm, all of which are relatively lean, very productive, very educated in their disciplines. So those four support components are what give us, that is really what becomes the brain for the heart. You know, the heartbeat is what occurs at the counter. When you've got the other things going on, who is providing the education through our HR team. They educate our management team and our entry-level employees. Then we've got, again, for repair, for technology. Technology today, uh, we've got seven people dedicated to just that every day, all day. You know, again, if cashless goes down, that affects us in a very big way. We can't afford for a, a connectivity issue for the delivery element of what we do. So it's a complex web that we've got to cast a broader net over to make sure we cover. And it's, it's very intentional to each of our disciplines, whether it's a support function. Dad mentioned our HR team, which is actually a, also a training leadership and development team. So we've got an entire team developed solely to the focus of P 
people development. Uh, you've got an individual from group person who wants to be a shift manager. They take you on that path. An individual will be assigned to you who takes you on an entire program all the way to general manager if you want. And these folks are training supervisors too on, on the higher level aspects of our business. And so I think we sort of meandered around this idea that we're an organization within an organization because we've got our own training team. We've got our own HR team and we've got maintenance and IT. And that, to Nicholas's point, the maintenance team keeps our restaurants from going down. Our grills are fixed within an hour if it's broken. Uh, we've got high priorities. The training and development, that creates our entire, you know, your, your bench for the next set of leadership who's going to take, take it from the folks that dad hired and trained, the people that Nicholas and I have hired and trained, and that next generation of folks that are going to be hired and trained to keep this entire living organism, Bluezo Companies, it's going to thrust us in the future. Yeah, it's really, really impressive what you guys have built across the board. I mean, it's just amazing to see it, honestly, especially just, again, the the time you guys, you know, how long it's been in business and the systems, you know, within the systems, right? It's it's really fascinating. Um, and I think to kind of cap off the conversation, you know, I'm curious to hear how, you know, th this goes for all you guys will have unique perspectives here. Um, you know, it's not easy for entrepreneurs to pass on a business to the next generation. You know, there's a lot of examples of this where, I mean, you know, let's say the kids of a successful founder slash CEO, you know, maybe their lives go in, in potentially poor directions. You know, they, they didn't necessarily have the work ethic that the original founder had. You know, so John, I'm curious, how, how did you feel you were brought up to be ready for the business and be inspired to run the business? And then, you know, I'd love to hear Mike and Nick's perspective on that. And, and again, I just want to kind of frame the question as I've heard this and on Twitter where I spend a lot of time, or it's a point of discussion at times is, you know, if you achieve this financial success for the first time within your family, you know, a lot of people worry about how do I make sure my kids, for lack of a better way to say, just how do we avoid them becoming spoiled brats? Uh, <laughs> and, and clearly, you know, you guys still have the hunger and the work ethic. So I'd love to hear what you guys think about that. Well, I'll start with the financial piece, which I think is very important. Then I'll get to the psychological piece. But yeah, I mean, financially, at least my own father, there were no gifts. You bought into the business. You went to the bank. You had a financial obligation to fulfill, and your own performance dictated whether you could meet that obligation. So that has a way in our business of leveling things out. Family businesses are a challenge to begin with, as I'm sure anybody would attest. We work very hard to keep work work and to keep family family. And again, that is not easy because if we talk to each other all day. It's very easy that at 8.30 at night, hey, I've got an idea. And you know that we couch each other to say, hey, wait, I'm doing this. Let's catch up on that in the morning. But um, you know that, that transition and that point about spoiled, I don't think you'd find that in the Veluzo family. I think the work ethic expectation is set high. I think if you don't have a sense of obligation to that, you're not going to last in this business. Okay. And again, I may, as a parent, that's, I think it was Shaquille O'Neal said, well, I'm the one that was successful. You guys still have to do what you've got to do. And to be honest with you, there's a lot, that's a very profound way of saying it. People have to prove themselves. The buy-in is more than just ability. The buy-in has to become financial too. So 
Anyway, probably an odd answer to a great question, but we work very deliberately at it. And again, it's fun. It's difficult at times. I've got to acquiesce to uh, younger ideas that maybe, you know, methodology is changing. I've got to be very open to that. And that's not easy either as a parent, but you've got to make that step. So anyway, that's John's perspective. And we haven't even talked about that. That just kind of evolves <laughs> naturally. So that one doesn't start with a planning session. That's just the standard here. Right. It's never <laughs> something that been written down, I think, to a, a, trans, a set of expectations, right? It was always sort of lead by example. And, you know, Nicholas and I can tell you that we wake up very early in the morning based on the example of our dad. And it's the first thing we do is check on the business. And we didn't just come by that naturally. Dad would also call and wake us up very early with questions about the prior day. And we had to have the answer. And so we learned early in our careers that you don't want to be asked about a cash shortage on a drawer when you're, because Nicholas and I were general managers. You don't want to be asked about that cash shortage and not know about it. If he's already asking the question, you better have the answer already. And so he set a very high standard for us. And it's one that, you know, I'll take it all the way back to Nicholas and I just being athletes and being competitive. And and so we, we like to think that we compete in this business and, you know, we're every day, it's still a competition, right? It's to, to win over customers. It's to win over our people on both sides of the counter. And also too, in terms of earning stripes, no free lunches and no gifts. We expect we've got a work culture that's not just in the family, but to extended work family. And so in Beluzo companies, in order for Nicholas and I to come up alongside people who've been in this business 20 and 30 years, and this is a business that is learned experientially. You don't learn about it from a desk. You don't learn about it on the phone. It's being present in, in the restaurants and learning about food costs and learning about managing labor and learning about when a bus comes on lot, experiencing that in the kitchen. And so if you don't do that, you don't gain the respect of your peers. And how can you tell someone how to do something if you haven't done it yourself or experienced it? Because that's how you really lead is by saying, I've been through this and this is is my experience-based advice. And so, you know, I, I also know that Nicholas's kids and my kids, they see that same work ethic. And it's it's not even that it's intentional. It's so ingrained in us. And, and if we can pass on one thing through the generations that the Veluzos as a family I would like to say that a legacy is work ethic and working hard. And I want our kids to see that. And I certainly see it. And I'd love to think that I'm embodying that. And and I know Nicholas too. Yeah. It's a part of who we are. No, I second everything you said. It, it's nothing's expected. Everything's earned. And I think we've lived by that motto since we were really young. And then Michael referenced when we were coming up through the system and operating physical restaurants, physically in the restaurant, operating the, running them and dad calling us very early in the morning having us to expect an answer ingrained in us a work ethic that was second to none. You know, a lot of people talk about if you're the early bird rising, you're ahead of everybody else. And that's always been a mentality that we've taken. And it's obviously led by example. And we pride ourselves in that. I mean, we have a responsibility as fourth generation operators to be able to have this business in a good stance and create an, an atmosphere where our kids can potentially want to become operators as well. And that's our responsibility, and we're prideful for that. And um, this business does not allow you to take a back seat either. You can't be, like Michael said, behind a desk. You've got to be out there grinding it out, being with your people, shoulder to shoulder, really focused on the awareness of the business, understanding how to control chaos, what kind of chaos they're going through, whether it's both life or inside the restaurant and trying to create an atmosphere that they can be successful in. So, yeah, sounds like a, a lot of leading by example where 
you know, you've been there before and you've, you know, learned from your father because he's done it as well. And, you know, it just seems like it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, maybe not as much needs to be said. Uh, it's either, you know, you guys both reference being called early in the morning where, you know, maybe John was just like, Hey, like if these guys want to be in the business, this is what it's going to take. And we'll find out quickly, probably if you guys can't handle it, which before we wrap up here, now I'm really curious, what time do you guys wake up in the morning? I'm about a 5 a.m. guy between 4.45 and 5. Yeah, yeah 4, 4.30 Holy over crap. here. Oh, boy. Oh, so you guys do get up early. You guys weren't kidding. <laughs> and this one doesn't sleep. Yeah, yeah no, I'm, I'm earlier than that, but uh, <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Age does that to you as well. But, but uh, with this instant ability to check uh, you, how your performance is, you get a report card. I mean, it, by 3 in the morning, you really know how you did the previous day. So... Holy crap. It's a good place to leave it. I mean, uh, yeah, you want to be in the McDonald's business. You got to be able to wake up early. That's that's what I'm hearing. Kudos to you guys. Uh, I thought I was early at around, you know, 5.45 to 6.15, but I got some work to do. So, yeah. Look, guys, this, this was a fun conversation. You know, it's super awesome to really learn about McDonald's and also just Veluzo Company. So is there anywhere online if people want to follow you, your journey? or even Veluzo companies, you know, LinkedIn pages, social media, anywhere we can point them to? We have a Veluzo companies, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Michael and I both have Instagram and Facebook as well. We have, uh, we just started a Veluzo Brothers TikTok. So we have one posting there, more to come. Nice. We got 22,000 likes from our first post. Views. Holy crap. 22,000 views, yeah. All right. So that's, uh, a lot of people don't get that. All right. Yeah, I mean, a man I got content ideas <laughs> out the wazoo that I would do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're on usually all the handles and we also are on the uh, LinkedIn, Michael and I are on LinkedIn, Luzo companies as well. So easy to access. Amazing. All right. We'll plug those in the show notes for everyone listening. Give them a follow on TikTok so we can get those views even higher. And uh, <laughs> yeah, look, Michael, John and Nick, thanks a lot for coming on. We'll uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. Listen.